Welcome back to Crisp Talk. I'm Avery Moore-Kloss, and you're in for a really great episode today. Actually, we're going to do something a little bit different on this episode, and I want to explain why before we start. The work we do at CRISP covers a lot of different territory. The stories we are here to tell under the umbrella of security practices are diverse, complex, and important. So we've made a decision that even though you might be used to podcasts choosing one format, like interview, doc style, or monologue, and sticking to it, we want to tell our research stories in whichever format best fits that discussion. So, in our first episode, you heard from me about podcasting for knowledge mobilization. Last episode, we went documentary style with our discussion of future research that needs to be done around body-worn camera use in law enforcement. And for this episode, we chose a topic that our members discuss a lot amongst themselves. So we thought, what better way to reignite that topic in podcast style than to bring you a panel discussion about it? And trust me, it's good. If you're a researcher yourself, you've encountered research ethics boards before, and you've encountered them often. If you're just starting out on your journey in academic research, it's coming your way. And there is a lot to discuss here. Today, we are focusing on international research ethics. But first, I'd like to introduce you to Chris Member and Associate Director Brie Ockeson. Hi, my name is uh, Brie Ockeson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Social Work at Wilfrid Laurier University. I'm also the Canada Research Chair in global adversity and well-being. Aukison's research focuses on war-affected families, and she says she finds that often she ends up in really complex and interesting conversations with her colleagues about research ethics, specifically the challenges of reconciling research ethics board mandates with conducting sensitive and relevant research in international settings. Yeah, there were multiple episodes for me that really started the process of, of thinking about putting this episode together. I was working with a colleague um, and we were just generally chatting about research and international research and ethical issues that come up, expressing a bit of frustration with trying to put in ethics applications and not having a sense of, of what was expected in that regard. And this conversation was replicated with multiple colleagues Um both professors and PhD students. And I just started to see a theme arise when I talk with people about their international research. I think that these conversations about ethics and international research are happening, but they're not out in the open. They're not happening in a more public sphere. So to get this conversation out in the open, I think is really useful. And it becomes a platform by which to to take action, a platform by which to have further conversations. Um, And I think it also starts a dialogue between international researchers and research ethics boards as well, which I think is really important. So we've collected some of those colleagues and invited them along to discuss this issue for the podcast. Let me tell you who you'll hear from today. Actually, I'll let them tell you. Hi, I'm Stacy Wilson-Forsberg. I'm an associate professor in the Human Rights Human Diversity Program at Wilfrid Laurier University and current director of the Shepo Institute for the Study of Contemporary Africa. And I do research in Canada with a newcomer population and also newcomers in uh, Mexico. Hi, my name is Festus Moisson. 
I recently graduated with a PhD in social work from Wilfrid-Laurier University. I'm currently doing part-time with Wilfrid-Laurier University, uh, University of Windsor and King's College. My research area is in disability and mental health. I'm specifically interested in the culture and disability within the global southern context. Uh, uh, most of my research has been in Ghana uh, over the past uh, four years. Hi, my name is Steve Sider. I'm a uh, professor, an associate professor in the Faculty of Education at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, my research focuses on the intersection of disability, school leadership, and internationalization. Hi, my name is Kearney Copeland. I am a PhD candidate in Geography and Environmental Studies at Wilfrid Laurier University. I am also the chair of the Community Research Ethics Office, which is a nonprofit that's located in Waterloo. And my research examines the experience of individuals and households displaced by Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas. For more information about today's panelists, please head to the show notes. You'll find all the information you need right there. Now, please enjoy this panel discussion on some of the problematic issues our panelists have faced in international research ethics and why and how we can do better. Thought that we might start today with a little bit of a rapid fire where I'll get you each to answer this first question. Uh, and I think it's a really topical one. It's really just why are we here today? You know, starting with Bree, maybe let's let's kick off with you. Just give me an idea of why it's important that we're talking about research and ethics in international contexts now. Well, research ethics is really developed and it's it's set out to protect participants. And in international research, we tend to grapple with kind of this idea of balancing protection and safety of participants versus the importance of including participants' voices in research. And including participants' voices has the potential to positively affect their lives because it can lead to more awareness of the experiences of, of these populations and so forth. So it's this constant tension that we're dealing with in research ethics. And I think that that tension is exacerbated a lot more in international settings. Okay, Stephen, and, and what are your thoughts on, on why we're here today? Uh, like many things for myself, I approach a topic usually because of a mistake or a failure I've experienced in my in my own uh, in my own life, whether that's professional or otherwise. And certainly for me, when I think about research ethics, I, I can think of a number of times when I've been involved with research, uh, both in Canada and uh, abroad, in which uh, I've you know at the end of a day sat and thought what in the world just happened and how do the rules of engagement, so to speak, that might make sense in a certain community not make sense in another community? Why might something work well one place but not seem to work well in another? So I, I and, and I think added to that, I've, I've sat on the research ethics board at Laurier for a number of years. I'm no longer on the board, but it, I, um, I've always been fascinated by the the different kinds of research that people engage with in different contexts. Again, whether that's in Canada or globally, and um, how research ethics boards approach those uh, those types of research practices and protocols in different contexts, particularly when it might be uh, different, unique, something that we're we're not uh, necessarily comfortable with. So I think for for me, it's both been both of those things, my own mistakes, but also then the observation of of how research ethics boards with a particular institution from the global north. Approach um, approach issues around differences in research 
in the global south or in different contexts. Yeah, absolutely. Let, let's move to Kearney. Kearney, you know, in your view, why is it important that we're here today talking about, about research and ethics in this context? Um, my own research is in climate change and environmental mobility, and I think we're seeing a lot more of that. We, we anticipate we'll see a lot more of that in the coming years. So for me, the, the importance lies in doing research that has a practical application and that has some benefit to the communities that we're working with. If we're going to work in contexts um, where climate change is having the greatest impact, it's necessary that we do our research in an ethical way that can see some real practical applications and that can um, mitigate any risks that the community may be facing in terms of research, but in order to create some benefits um, that can be recognized in real time. Absolutely. That's a really good point. Um, on to Stacey. What's, what's your answer to that question? Well, I think it, it bounces back to Bree's initial comment of the need to balance the safety and protection of participants in an international setting with uh, the need to hear their voices. But also, we need to think about different cultures. Uh, as, as a university and as professors, we are asked uh, frequently to internationalize our curriculum. Um, and I'm not I'm not convinced that a typical research ethics board is internationalized uh, in a way that they can take different cultures, oral traditions, and languages uh, into account. And uh, I think that's that's quite important as well, both internationally and also dealing with people from different countries in Canada. Absolutely. Festus, to you, why is this important to talk about right now? I would build on from where Stacey ended. Uh, so we, we've been talking about decolonization and different uh, aspects of the world uh, in, in, in the Canadian context, etc. But we've never thought about how ethics have been colonized and how when uh, we internationalize our education and we invite uh, students and, and scholars from all over the world to come in and work and school in Canada, uh, we haven't considered how the Canadian uh, ethics uh, processes uh, a form of colonization of uh, certain contexts. And so um, when I started my education, my doctoral studies in Canada, I, I was uh, involved in a number of internal studies uh, where we applied to the ethics board and we had uh, ethics approval for studies inside Canada. And then when I was ready to do my uh, PhD uh, dissertation research, I applied for ethics and then I realized how things were in sharp contrast between uh, research in Canada and research in outside of Canada, particularly in the global south. And so um, that started uh, uh, engineering some interest in me to want to look at what uh, the Canadian edu uh, educational system and the ethics board have been involved in doing in order to uh, liberate the system to allow for us who are coming from outside of Canada to do research that would not be hindered in some ways by the ethics uh, processes. And so uh, those were the initial uh, um, uh, encounters that uh, engendered my interest in international ethics. Now, Festus, you know, I think that that's a really good 
point to start off on. And, and I'd like to ask you this first question also, because I think you have experience in, in both Canadian you know, research in Canada and, as you say, research in the global south. How does ethics and international research differ from domestic research? What are the differences that you've seen? Yeah, so um, when, when we uh, apply for ethical approval from the uh, ethics boards from the Canadian context, um, it, it appears to me that a lot of the uh, issues are already known by the uh, panel who would be reviewing the proposal. And so th- there are practical comments that comes to you that can easily be uh, uh, addressed compared to when you apply to uh, for ethical approval from uh, for a research in the global southern context. So when I applied for my first study in Canada, it was just a matter of uh, legal uh, issues that we needed to take care of so that uh, people we were interviewing would be safe. Versus when I applied for uh, ethical approval to do my research in Ghana, then a lot of things started hitting at me. I, I do my research with people with disability, for example, in order to empower them. And then you you would apply for ethics and then somebody says that you need a second person to witness uh, whatever the person with disability would have already consented to before you can uh, interview them. That alone is is, uh, disempowering for people with disabilities in that context. Now, um, there are a lot of expectations for, for us to do in the international context, assuming that the contexts are the same as in the Canadian context. We are unable to research certain categories of people because of ethical, uh, I mean, expectations of that. So, for example, um, I was asked to provide proof that some individuals have the capability to consent. And this proof must be either that uh, they go through uh, an assessment. And in Ghana, where I do most of my research, there is only one disability assessment center, and that is in the capital city, Accra. And if I were to uh, move people about um, 817 kilometers away from Accra to come for testing, that's a problem in itself. But the more, the more difficult problem is the te- assessment centers themselves are not resource enough to be able to do any effective assessment. And so if ethics board will consider that um, we need to rethink issues of consent in some context, it will be helpful for our uh, uh, ability to research certain categories of people. There's, there, there are a lot of examples that I can give, but for want of time and for others to speak, we would, I will pause it over here and then we may continue. Thanks, Vestas. Now, Tabri, can you give me a sense of, for you, what the differences are there? No, I, I really liked what Festa said. And um, I, I, I was thinking when we talk about, you know, ethics uh, internationally versus domestic, when we talk about international ethics, it's not homogenous, right? So there's an element of, you know, the, the way that I see ethics or the way that ethics is uh, portrayed or, or, or uh, performed, I guess, in, in other contexts is going to be different in when I do research in Afghanistan versus when I do research in Lebanon. So I just wanted to mention that because I think it's an important point that it's not just, you know, how we do research domestically in Canada versus how we do research elsewhere. It's not a homogenous kind of um, way of looking at ethics. And I think one of the main things that that I think makes things different 
is the definitions of how we have, how we see or conceptualize these terms that we use in ethics. So we oftentimes uh, use terms like consent and privacy, confidentiality, anonymity. Those terms are so different depending on the context. So we kind of have a sense of what that is like in Canada, and we we have a you know similar conceptualizations, although that differs depending on the the population, but. The idea of consent or the idea of privacy or the, da- the idea of con- confidentiality is just so different in different places. I'll give an example just really quickly. Um, typically, and I, you know, when you do research, you want it to be in a secure setting where you're talking one-on-one with somebody um, and it's there's privacy so that the person can share these you know, intimate parts of their life about you know, the, on the topic that you're researching. But in many, many places, especially the places that I work, there that doesn't happen. <laughs> Number one, the family members are coming in and out. The ki- there's kids there. If, if, if you know, you're know you interviewing the mom or the dad, the kids are coming into the room. Maybe an aunt knocks on the door and wants to borrow something from the kitchen. Um, so this idea of privacy, confidentiality is just so different depending on the context. And I think that's one of the main things that, that makes it different um, from research domestically than research um, in, in other contexts. So I, I just wanted to to add a little bit to what we just said in terms of somebody walking in and out. In in my context and in the culture that I did my uh, research, my dissertation research, uh, it is practiced that when somebody is with a stranger, there should be some third party in the presence of those two. And so in in my context, I could not avoid having somebody else in the presence of uh, the uh, person who is a uh, whom I, I am interviewing, and so I had a struggle, for example, with the ethics board, getting them to understand that this individual who will be the third party is supposed to be there to enable me be able to do that research, and that is uh, some something that has to do with confidentiality and 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 as we said, but to the person that I'm interviewing, that individual who is a third party and present in the meeting is supposed to be uh, an insurance for the person's safety and therefore their ability to have a peace of mind to contribute uh, more productively to the conversation that you're having with them. I'll keep going. Um, I, my PhD research, I was in the middle of field work um, in March and had to come home because of the global pandemic. Um, so for me, I just want to touch on this because the privacy and confidentiality has shifted for me where I was intending to do face-to-face uh, interviews and now all of my interviews have had to been, be over the phone. And so um, which, which research ethics allows that it be over the phone, but this understanding of privacy and confidentiality um, has come up in ways of exactly what Bessis and Bree are saying, people coming into the room, people, and it's not, it's out of my control. So uh, for example, I was interviewing somebody the other day. We talked about, um, you know, the consent form and what the project was, and she was in line at the bank. And so it wasn't up to me to decide what that privacy looked like for her. Uh, but again, this kind of shifts the way ethics boards see um, privacy and how we would maybe more conventionally do these interviews in very uh, strict kind of bounded ways. Um, so all that to say that 
there's definitely a different understanding of privacy. And I think we understand it in one way in North America, uh, which can be very different in different places. And in this way, it actually allowed the the participant to decide uh, what those restrictions were going to be on who could hear her speak about her experience. Right. Yeah. Shifting it, shifting it to the participant. Right. Uh, Steve, what are your thoughts here? I, I am thoroughly enjoying hearing uh, from my colleagues on on this topic. It, it's mind, it makes me mindful of even the constructs, uh, not just the idea of kind of the on the ground, uh, you know, challenges of people moving in and out of spaces and where interviews and so forth might be happening. But even the idea that the construct of confidentiality is in some communities, I do much of my work in Haiti, the idea of, of confidentiality in a lot of rural communities is would be a fairly um, foreign, ta- foreign idea because community is, is the antithesis of confidentiality. Community, there's a Creole proverb that talks about communities are like white sheets, meaning they're like that place where everyone feels welcome, where you put out your fresh linen, where everyone's at home. There, there is no confidentiality. Neighbors, um, the, the kinds of things you, you, you eat, the kinds of things you do in your daily practices are all just part of what it means to live in community. So I think this, to me, brings up issues around um, how do we construct these ideas and where are these ideas of things like confidentiality and anonymity, where, where do they emanate from? And I think we, we still have a strong bent in much of our research, which is around a positivist, you know, kind of a, a colonial or neo-colonial perspective on, you know, it's formulaic. It, the, these are the things you, the boxes you check off. And that I think comes into conflict with the, the idea of uh, what um, research, or let's even take the word research and say that maybe that's a construct that in many communities doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense, but really they're more focused on uh, a holistic uh, betterment uh, and how how they how they engage with that process then can look very different. You know, you're talking about neocolonialism. I guess one of the questions here is what aspects of neocolonialism are kind of inherent in that research ethic board um, protocols? Or you know, if we're looking at that, whose knowledge counts here? As a follow-up, yeah. So I think that's a it's a great question, and I, I can think of one specific example being. When uh, when research ethics clearances are provided, there is an expectation that if you are working in a community, that the partnering organization that you will that you are working with would have some sort of a, a research ethics protocol, and the expectation is that you are aligning your uh, your research methodologies with that um, that community organization, and I think that's. Again, I would see that as an example of neocolonial. That the the north, uh, the northern research ethics board is expecting that the local uh, that there is going to be a local community organization that has some sort of a research ethics protocol that you will align with. And in my work in Haiti, the, even universities, uh, that you know, like the state university, like uh, community organizations, it, it's rare or difficult to identify a research ethics protocol that is uh, kind of homegrown. So I, I, that's just one simple example. And I'm sure my colleague can, can think of other examples. I can, I'll, I'll stop at that moment. I have some other examples I'll share, but that might provide one salient uh, example. So I have a little that I want to add to what Steve has said in terms of uh, the colonial mentality. 
and and what what constitutes valid knowledge and what doesn't constitute valid knowledge and uh, and i believe that uh if if we really uh and we as in the ethics boards within the canadian context uh, or in the global north in general would accept for the fact that there are local structures within the systems that we are researching which might not be formalized, but which uh, would have their own checks and balances to ensure that researchers come into their communities and do not exploit the people and then uh, and leave with the knowledge. I, I believe that there could be uh, this could be a stepping point for people to relax the system to allow for us to be able to research populations that are otherwise difficult to research and would be difficult to have ethics approval from the, the northern uh, global northern context. So, for example, I keep asking myself uh, um, when we talk about ethics within the Canadian context, whose ethics are we referring to? Is it the ethics of the local people we are we are researching? Who wouldn't mind the way we do our research with them? Or the ethics of the Canadian Ethics Board that defines what is right and wrong for a context that perhaps people who are assessing and approving do not have uh, uh, typical awareness of such uh, the, the, those con- the culture of those contexts. So it's, it's a difficult thing. If we were to uh, be able to allow for uh, the validity of non-documented knowledges, for example, then we would allow for people to be able to research certain categories that we wouldn't be able to otherwise research within the Canadian context without certain uh, structures put in place to, to, to uh, guard research. Absolutely. I think that's a really important question, um, Festus, this idea of whose ethics are we talking about? Um, and I wonder, I mean, is there is there action that can be taken in that way to, to you know, even the score there when we're talking, when we're weighing whose ethics should be should be considered? Well, I'll, just quickly, a couple of thoughts. Again, great points from, uh, from Festus there. I think there are some guidelines that are provided by organizations in the global north. And I think this is, uh, we need to be mindful of this and take these things into consideration. Like the World Health Organization has um, has frameworks for engaging with research in different jurisdictions, particularly in, in potentially marginalized communities. Uh, the res- uh, the Tri-Council Policy Statement 2, the, the, the guideline that the Tri-Council, the three funding agencies and the research ethics boards align with uh, also provides guidance as far as research in, I think they call it multi-jurisdictional research or research that happens in, in different contexts. And they do talk about kind of underlying principles or core principles, if I remember correctly, that, that do speak to things that should guide our, our research processes. So I think, you know, if we, if we say that there are some foundational principles that can support research in different contexts, Maybe the last quick comment I'll make here is as far as research ethics boards, sometimes we're quick to lay blame at research ethics boards, and sometimes that's probably justified. And sometimes I think it's an issue of just uncertainty with what does research look like in, let's call it field research, which is problematic in itself, but research that happens in different contexts than what we're familiar with. We are meaning a research ethics board. So, one way that, you know, that we uh, have tried to ensure that research is ethically conducted with uh, Indigenous populations in Canada, is ensuring that research ethics boards have uh, Indigenous knowledge keepers or specialists who provide input, 
similarly a step forward or a way forward for international research or research that involves international um, uh, kind of ethics is to think about engaging people that have experience in international research with those decisions. Uh, to Bree's earlier point, you know, it's international research is 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 incredibly diverse and research within Bree to your point, you said Afghanistan. Well, I'm sure within Afghanistan, you can look at all sorts of different research issues between ur- urban and rural communities, between different parts of the country, between areas with even within a, a particular city. So we're never going to get to the point where we have uh, a research ethic board or board members who are going to be all knowing about the different nuances of international research, but ensuring that research ethics boards have people who are at least familiar with international research, I think will help with some of the concerns that, uh, for example, that Festus has raised earlier. You know, that's a lot of good points there. And I think I'll I'll hit this one to Bree. Bree, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I just wanted to expand a bit on what what Steve said because I think when when I go out when I go to the field and and do research, I'm armed with this ethics approval that's been you know vetted by my university's research ethics board. And typically, research ethics board they're not they're not all international researchers. Maybe there's one or two who do international research, and and very it's very unlikely that the people on the ethics board have specific experience in the actual country that I'm going to be going to. (laughs) So I like to think of it as, you know, this is my plan for ideally dealing with ethics and, and, and kind of ensuring the the safety and well-being of my participants. And that's, that's kind of this idea of procedural ethics, these formal mechanisms, which we all kind of agree to abide by. However, when we, when I get to the field, there's, things that happen. There's things that come up. There are uh, questions that arise. There are contextual changes. There's, there's, you know, the potential in my situation, in my research that I do, there's a potential for violence. Uh, There's the potential for um, things to go awry. (laughs) And so the procedural ethics that I'm armed with, they don't go out the window, but they have to be amended. They have to be kind of contextualized depending on the context. And the everyday realities of doing research really change that. And I like to think that the research ethics board sees that as uh, understands that reality. And so what I do and what I tell my team, what I tell my research team members is that the decisions we make, we're going to try to do the best we can in terms of this, uh, our ethical guidelines. However, the dignity and the well-being of our participants is our priority. So if something has to change because of that, if we have to do something, if we're not going to, if we, um, Perhaps we're not going to be asking them to read the consent form because we don't want to put uh, somebody on the spot who might not be able to read. Those are kind of the changes that we'll make in order to preserve the dignity and well-being of participants. And the other thing I do is that um, I'm always checking with my participants after interviews, after collecting data, I ask them, you know, what did you like about this? What didn't work? And I'm always getting their advice. And that I think research ethics boards should value as well. And I think research ethics boards should value and rely on the expertise of the researcher and um, knowing that that researcher will take into account the dignity and well-being of the populations that we're researching. Absolutely. Stacey, I'd love to hear your thoughts here. I love that response uh, from Bree, and I was smiling as she was speaking because it uh, it's identical, really. Um, 
I, I do a lot of research in in Mexico with it used to be with undocumented or irregular migrants. Most of them are now uh, refugee claimants, so they've already they've already claimed refuge, so they're known to the government. They're not in hiding. But I tend to interview them at migrant shelters. And doing research in a country like Mexico with um, a population that's always moving by they're they're migrating they're they're moving it's like it's like dancing on a moving carpet um so it's the the same i go i do the best i can um i go through with the procedural ethics i do push back as much as i can with the research ethics board for example i need to have oral consent i can't have people signing documents and many of them can't uh, many of them uh, can't read or write in their own language and also papers terrify them. They're terrified of authority. Um, I can't go into a, a migrant shelter with a consent form or any papers, not even an inter- interview s- schedule. Um, so again, doing things that, that protect them, that protect their dignity. And, um, and it's, it's, um, it, it really is, um, different in, in practice than it is, uh, than it is uh, procedurally with with consent forms and and uh, authority. So thank you, Bree, uh, Stacy, and Steve. I, I think that the, your responses to that question is uh, uh, very rich, and uh, perhaps what I have to add to this is that the ethics uh, board should be ready to uh, bounce ideas by people whom they would have recognized as having some level of expertise and in certain areas when these issues pop up. Um, like Stacy said, I have, uh, when, I, when I did my research, I had to uh, continue to push back uh, some of the ideas that were thrown at me from the ethics board. And I found that people with uh, a few exchanges of emails will come to understand that it is absolutely necessary that I did things the way that I proposed to do them. So for example, uh, I had an issue with uh, time printing uh, as a form of uh, signature appendage to uh, the consent form versus uh, video or, or, or audio recording consent. Now, Stacey talked about uh, the, the fear of paper in, in her context. Uh, contrary, in my context, people would rather uh, uh, Tom print than to, to be videotaped or audiotaped in, in, that, in that regard. And people are used to Tom printing as a, the alternate to signing signature with prints. But the ethics board did not seem to understand that I could do that until I had to uh, push, push and push again until they accepted that I did that. So sometimes it's important that um, we, we should push and see how we get things uh, accepted by the ethics board. And then they should bounce it by other people who would uh, have had some experiences to uh, uh, advise on how some of these things are done in some cultures that uh, they are not aware of. Okay, so I think Festus makes a great point about consent and the you know how consent is seen in different contexts and different places what are the issues around informed consent that are important to consider here when we look at at international research versus research um, in the global north i'll i'll respond to that um going back to the idea of papers and written written consent signatures is problematic in the context where where i do my research um, i usually will 
do a simplified uh, summary of, of what would be on a simplified consent form and uh, ask for oral consent. And then later I would fill out a document saying that this person gave oral consent and, and the date and, and the time with my, my signature. And usually that's, that's fine uh, from a research ethics point of view. The other issue I encounter a lot uh, in in Mexico is a lot of the uh, people I speak with um, are not necessarily honest about their age. Um, I usually don't have permission to speak with children. Uh, so undocumented minors, uh, are, are there's a lot of them. Uh, many, many of the asylum seekers, migrants coming through Mexico from Central America and now African countries as well and Haiti um, are undocumented minors. They're under the age of, often under the age of 16, but they won't admit it. Um, so they're often in places where they shouldn't be. So they're in adult uh, migrant shelters. Um, that can get complicated. Um, they, they're unaccompanied, so they don't have a guardian or, or anyone who can sign that form. And if the director of that migrant shelter signs off, then there's then a confidentiality issue. And we may, it may turn out that they're giving us responses that they think that the director want to hear. Um, so it, it definitely complicates matter, matters when, when there are young people involved in the research. Absolutely. I can see how that, that complicates that idea of consent, right? Uh, let's go to Steve next. Steve, give me your thoughts on this. Yeah, just a, Stacey, what Stacy has done is very uh, similar to what I have done. I just wanted to provide, um, you know, just to remind us a little bit that informed consents, there's a reason historically why we now are struggling through this question about how do we get informed consent, right? Because if you, I think if you look at research that's been done to people, uh, particularly uh, research that's been done to people in the global south, uh, in the name of medical research or anthropological research or educational research uh, that's been done, again, historically without consent um, and the damage that that has done um, physically and mentally uh, is is what's led us to where we're now, where research ethics boards, uh, I think, generally are so concerned about getting informed consent. So I think it's just important that we keep in mind or be mindful of the reason we're at that point. What we're struggling through is how do we do that? But recognizing that there's just like so many things that happen historically, there's uh, there's an action and then some sort of a reaction that tries to rebalance, you know, where where people's have the right or the ability to to give voice to to give consent to uh, when research when they're engaged with research. Great. Uh, we'll go to Bree and then we'll go to Festus after. So, so Bree, the mic is yours. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah, I was just going to say some other kind of innovative approaches to obtaining consent. Um, one of my colleagues, Jennifer Thompson, uh, created a a visual consent form, which I think is fantastic. She uh, used it with her research in West Africa, where there were high illiteracy rates. And instead of trying to figure out who can who can read and who can't, and try and embarrassing some people who might you know feel shamed by that, um, they created an informed consent form that was just visual pictures of you know talking and and then uh, you know. Uh, things that would depict kind of the, the process, the research process to uh, ensure that people were informed as possible before agreeing to participate. Um, so that's, that's just one kind of innovative approach that I think, 
I think research and especially international research should be coming up with these kind of creative ways to address ethical issues um, within certain contexts. Um, and then I just wanted to add a question to what uh, Steve had said. Steve gave really good uh, kind of um, reference to the history of research ethics boards as a means to protect populations who are marginalized and who are taken advantage of by scientific research. Um, so ethics boards have a real big responsibility and a really important place in research um, because of that. But I wonder, and I, I kind of pose this question to the group as well, is if the pendulum has swung too far, where because we want to protect marginalized populations through these ethical uh, processes, if the pendulum has swung too far and we and ethics boards have become too paternalistic. Um, so that's one of those kinds of issues that I think we're discussing today. I think it's an interesting thing to think about. I, I, I perfectly agree with uh, Steve uh, to the effect that um, people, uh, research participants need uh, the protection uh, that is necessary to ensure that we do not, uh, as researchers, abuse them. The, the only thing I want to add to this is that the, the need for the ethics board to consider uh, trusting uh, researchers who go a long way to research in certain communities, for example. So in my instance, um, so uh, for uh, I guess a lot, a lot of people here uh, on the panel already know where I'm coming from with my research. But I entered uh, disability research uh, specifically because of my brother's experience. And my brother had a developmental disability. I really wanted to interview people with developmental disabilities to, to establish uh, their personhood and citizenship within the context of my culture. Unfortunately, because of the extra protection that the ethics boards would want to give for people in that category, um, we, we, we end up not being able to uh, interview them and therefore not being able to project their voices and experiences. So then as, as, as the Bree's question went, has the pendulum swung too far? Uh, have we then ended up harming these people more than we are protecting them in that respect? Are we able to hear their voices and therefore push for certain policy changes and practice changes to, to ensure that they benefit from whatever they are entitled to within their contexts? And so for me, uh, um, I think that it's about time we started thinking about why somebody who is in Canada and has an opportunity to do research in Canada and would obviously have it far easier doing research in Canada will travel to a, a rural area in a Ghanaian, uh, in Ghana to do uh, research. And whether these individuals are not well-intentioned in, in going there. So some level of trust for researchers is important to ensuring that we are able to avert this. And as for the pendulum, I believe strongly that we need to uh, be, start pulling it back a little bit until it stabilizes. Otherwise, it's swinging to a point where people we are trying to protect might end up getting hurt the more by our protection uh, measures. Yeah, I think that's a really important question, Festus and, and Bree. You know, this idea of, you know, is it unnecessarily paternalistic or are we causing harm? Uh, does anyone have anything they'd like to add to that conversation um, or any specific examples? Maybe we'll go to Kearney. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the pendulum swinging too far, I wonder that sometimes because if it's so restrictive, if, if the procedures that we 
as researchers are expected to follow for good reason. When they're so restrictive, do we start to kind of leave out certain pieces or do we not mention something? You know, there's pieces where, um, again, going to what Festus uh, and Stacey Embry, I think what everybody's saying here, you know, that level of trust that we have, that we we hope that REV has in uh, the researcher themselves in knowing the context in which they're doing work. Um, I know there's there's many examples of researchers who haven't had good intentions, but as Festus mentioned, I think um, better understanding where the researcher's coming from to be confident that the researcher is well-intentioned uh, and has knowledge of the context in which they're doing work may be a piece that we're missing in, in that ethics response outside of just the procedures that are being asked of, of the researcher, is there a component that's missing in terms of tell us about your context and your relationship to the research that makes it a bit more personalized, that makes their, um, you know, it be more comprehensible as to how and why this researcher wants to engage with this community. I think that REB, the, the boards really want to understand what's happening and they want to support good research that is the the ultimate goal is to have well-intentioned research out there um it's just a matter of having this trust in the researcher and asking questions that are gonna that's gonna lead to research that benefits the community and the context in which people are working rather than strictly following this framework of guidelines that you must you must follow this you must do this um, that pendulum has swung a little bit far that way. In my opinion, I am a novice researcher, I would say. So maybe I haven't seen all of that as completely as the other people on the panel. But no, I think that's I think that's a, a really good view of it. Stacy, to you on this question of whether the pendulum has swung too far. Yeah, I think I'm reiterating uh, what everyone else has said. And Kieran, especially your comment, I thought that was really lovely. Kind of a, a holistic uh, place in a, a, a research ethics forum where we can explain what, why it is we're doing this and why, um, why should, you know, why, why, why trust us, uh, doing this research? Because I don't think we're necessarily hurting or that, that these guidelines are hurting people, but we're definitely silencing them. Um, if, if I have to, if I'm, if I'm talking to, for example, or speaking with, uh, uh, somebody, this is actually more in Canada than, than in an international context, but people with refugee backgrounds here. And if I have to go through a consent form that's six pages long, um, and my research participant, and there's a translator involved because, uh, she may speak Somali or another language and can't read or write in her own language, um, we're silencing her, uh, by, by all of these guidelines. We're, we're, we're stopping this lady from, from talking when really we're only asking, how are you helping your children with your homework? Um, so yes, it's definitely swung uh, a bit too far in that respect. But back to your point, Kieran, yeah, I really love um, the idea of of you know explaining why we do what we do and 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 why they should uh, perhaps trust have some trust in that we're that we really are trying to make a difference and not not harming people. You know what? I think this is a really great conversation we've had, and I think you know, the wrap up to that conversation is is also really important, especially when, you know, we're having these conversations and and we're bringing up these important issues, right? Which is, what do we do now? Now what? 
do we abandon international research? You know, if we don't abandon it, how can we do better in this area? And I thought that might be a good question to end on and that we can kind of go through each person on the panel and just just everyone give me, you know, a, a quick answer to w- what you think we do now. And I think the place to start, we're going to start with Festus. So Festus, I guess the question to you is, now what? Right. So um, the, the question about abandonment or otherwise of interna- international research is out of the, 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 the conversation uh, because uh, Canadian universities and Canada in, uh, as a whole uh, stands to benefit a lot from uh, international research. And so many, there are so many uh, faculty members, uh, professors who would become, I, I don't know what, what is the right word to use to describe them, but whose essence will be, will be lost if they have no opportunity to do international research. I believe that uh, uh, being an immigrant, the only way that I can contribute back to my community back home is through research and, and publications and, and, and some forms of advocacy. So that, that should be a conversation that we shouldn't start at all in terms of abandoning international research. What I, I think we can do is uh, what we have started doing through this podcast. Send that message out there for people who are in charge of decision-making in terms of ethics to get to uh, begin to think about ways that we can do some introspection to, to begin to decolonize uh, the ethics processes in order to allow for other perspectives to enter into the conversation. And that will help us to begin to think through those perspectives rather than through the Canadian perspective. So uh, doing a lot of uh, education uh, of, of people who need to know about things that are happening outside of the Canadian context by way of ethical restrictions is important in my perspective. Stacey, you're up next. Agreed. And I agree with, with Festus. I think international research is more important than, than ever. I think from a human rights perspective, um, if, if, uh, when we're dealing with a population, a, a marginalized or vulnerable population in a situation, uh, where the country they're in, perhaps the, the state, the government is not doing enough to protect them, then we really need to be part of getting that message out there. Um, in human rights, we call it the boomerang effect. If one country is is not doing enough to protect that population, then you try to you you, you boomerang it off and and try to get another country to to intervene on on their behalf. So, from a human rights perspective, it's so important. Um, I mean, when I when I when I finished my I, I when I did my PhD research, I focused on immigrant and refugee youth. And when I came to Laurier 10 years ago, I thought, okay, no more. I, I can't focus on, on youth anymore because there's just so many layers of ethics to working with people, uh, under the age of 18 or 16. But it just, it, I kept coming back to it because, uh, they, they are the group that I think, um, we really need to listen to their voices. And also from an academic or university uh, curriculum perspective, again, um, universities are being asked to internationalize their, their uh, curriculum from an equity diversity perspective. Um, good professors, good instructors uh, tie their research very closely with their teaching. Um, so if we're going to teach international content in the classroom, then many of us need to be doing that international research uh, to bring that to the students uh, so the students can continue uh, to, to really um, 
push that message home to 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 write about it to to keep these voices uh, where they need to be. Kearney, you're next up. I agree. Uh, international research um, can't be left out of the conversation. Um, you know, I think in terms of knowledge sharing, this is a great starting point. Sharing what it is that we've experienced as researchers. Um, and, and sharing not only with the, you know, ethics community, but also with other researchers. I feel like I've learned so much today about other people's experiences uh, and what they've seen in, in their work. Um, I think there is this concern that ethics can be very restrictive. Even the, even the thought of um, submitting or thinking about a research ethics application can, you know, send shivers up people's spines thinking, oh my gosh, the work, the questions, um, you know, and it's, it's a shame if it restricts people from doing work, good work uh, in communities that um, could really benefit from, from research being done and for those, for their stories and their information to be shared. Um, yeah, I think, I do think just ha- continuing these conversations I am confident that research ethics boards want to see good research happening. Um, And so if it is a conversation of, um, it's a continuing conversation, I would say, about thinking about how we understand the researcher and the context that they're coming from and and having that trust in the researcher to make sure that that research is done well and in accordance with what the community wants. Absolutely. And to Steve? Yeah, I started by talking about much of what I've learned about research has been done, has been learned through mistakes. And I'm just, as I'm listening to my colleagues, I'm thinking of on a very personal level, I think the now what for me is continuing to foster that mindfulness around the research that I engage with to make sure that with or without research ethics boards, just from a, from a positional perspective, uh, ensuring that I'm uh, kind of interrogating my own research and the positionality I bring to my research. In fact, maybe that's a now what for, if we take that back out for research ethics boards and we think about how do we help research ethics boards understand what we bring to the research, maybe uh, just like many of us do for academic articles or for books now where we where we provide a, a positional statement indicating how we approach the research or what brings us to the research. Maybe that should be the front the the front matter on on the uh, research ethics board's applications. The clearance applications is a little bit of a positional statement that might help situate us, the researcher within the research. So, Again, for me, it's a matter of continually coming back to why Why do I do this? I think it does make us much more understanding and compassionate and and just better humans as far as engaging in international research and to think about how I can do that in ways that is ethical with or without a, an overseeing board to make sure that uh, I'm, I'm doing what I need to be doing uh, in a way that is respectful of the people with whom I work. Absolutely. Last word today goes to Brie. Sure. Um, I think we always have to keep in mind that we want to hold the dignity, self-worth, and well-being of our participants as the top priority. And that should really guide all of our conversations, all of our decisions, all of our practices. And I think we can shift from 
envisioning or experiencing REBs as these kind of protective uh, systems. And not that they aren't protective systems, but shifting that kind of view from REBs as protective to empowering participants. And how can we best empower participants to ensure that uh, they feel like they're making the decisions in the research, that they're participating uh, voluntarily and, and, and how they want to participate. And we can do that by asking participants for their input. I think it's really important to keep chatting with the people that we're doing research with. Um, I'm just remembering a story of, of a woman that I interviewed. Um, it's one of the first interviews I did for a research study. She's a Syrian mother uh, living in Lebanon. And after the interview, she gave me some advice and she said, you know, I think it'd be better if you ask, if you, you, you ask the questions in this order. You asked us about our life in Syria. Then you asked us about our journey to Lebanon. Then you asked us about our life in Lebanon. And that's because it's so hard to tell the, those stories. And we want to know that we don't want to have, to, that you're not going to go back into some and ask something very upsetting. And so she gave me this great advice and I've integrated it into my research from that moment on. And I wouldn't have gotten that insight if I hadn't asked her, you know, what do you think? Or do you have any advice for me? So I think that that's really important of, of involving our participants. And then the last thing I want to mention is this idea of kind of thinking outside the box and adjusting how we traditionally do uh, procedural ethics in international settings. So we tend to anonymize our participants. Uh, we don't use their names. We use a pseudonym. And that's kind of a traditional way of doing uh, ethics uh, in, in all settings. Um, I remember I told a, a father that, uh, a father from Palestine, and he said, no, I want you to use my name. I want you to use my full name because I want the world to know my story. I want, I want if something happens to me, I want my name to be out there and I want my story to be heard. And I think that that's a really... Uh, important example, but it's also something I shared with REB. And that leads me to the last point of, of how we need to really work alongside REBs. As Kearney said, REBs want to help. They, wanted, they want us to do well as researchers. They want to support us. Um, and I think we need to keep that conversation going and we need to share those experiences from the field with REBs so that uh, we can all do better research that, that makes a difference. Absolutely. I think that's a great place to end, Brie. And I thank you all for sharing your stories on this specific topic. And And it was really lovely to have a conversation from all your different viewpoints and perspectives. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chris Talk. We owe a huge debt of gratitude to our panelists today. Brie Aukison is an associate professor of social work at Wilfrid Laurier University. She is the Canada Research Chair in Global Adversity and Well-Being and also the associate director of CRISP. Kearney Copeland is a Ph.D. candidate in geography and environmental studies at Laurier. She is also the chair of the Community Research Ethics Office. Festus Moasoon holds a Ph.D. in social work from Laurier and is currently teaching at Laurier, University of Windsor and King's College. Steve Sider is an associate professor in the Faculty of Education here at Laurier, and Stacey Wilson-Forsberg is an associate professor in the Human Rights Human Diversity Program. She's also the director of the Shepo Institute for the Study of Contemporary Africa. You can find more information about our guests and their research in the show notes of this episode. We are so glad you joined us, and we cannot wait to uncover more of our research on our next episode. This is Chris Talk, and I'm Avery Moore-Kloss.